1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Five days ago, our spy ship sunk in the Ionian Sea. She was equipped with ATAC. Have we begun a salvage operation? We asked Sir Timothy Havelock to secretly locate the wreck. He and his wife were killed by Hector Gonzalez. Police were able to identify Gonzalez by Melina, Sir Havelock's daughter. Explosive. Exclusive. Oh, I trust you, Avatar. For your amazement, this bond is for you. Oh, by the way, we haven't been properly introduced, Melina. My name is Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond. You have shot your last bolt. We're not dead yet. Good afternoon, Mr. Bond. You are now flying under remote control. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. Why not come in for a bite? For your eyes only can see me through the night. This bond is for your eyes only. comes close to 007. When 007 comes close to you,
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and we are back once again taking a look at the next entry in the James Bond series, which is For Your Eyes Only. So as with every James Bond film so far, I am joined by David Pascarella. Hey, good to be here again. Good to have you back. And as has been the case since On Her Majesty's Service, Secret Service, excuse me, we have Mr. Chris Tyler. Hey, detente, everybody, detente. And we have a newcomer to the panel for today's show, Mr. Jeffrey Vaughn. Good evening. And Jeff, uh, if, if you listen to Back to the Binge, you'll have heard him on there long before this episode actually gets posted, because we are recording this way in advance. We're way ahead on our James Bond films. Uh, but Jeff, uh, you've been posting some James Bond questions of late what's your favorite film who's your favorite villain all these things uh so clearly you are an aficionado of this uh series i am and i figured let's get your background a little bit uh i saw my first bond film uh, in a double feature of dr no and goldfinger at the drive-in with my parents when i was not even three years old my review consisted of the phrase car all broken uh i (laughs) I uh, was reminded of this for the rest of my father's life. Uh, (laughs) uh, But we shared an affinity for the Bond films uh, that my brother also has. Um, Until uh, The World Is Not Enough, starting with Spy Who Loved Me, I saw everyone on opening day. Nice. Uh, And I have to say the first movie that I went with, like one of my friends to see, uh, without without adults was the spy who loved me we went to the gateway theater which was one of the old big movie theaters in downtown pittsburgh with a balcony and everything and i of course from television was already hooked on bond movies but when roger moore skied off the mountain and the union jack parachute man uh, it, uh if i wasn't hooked then uh and, and and then you throw in the incredibly sexy and competent uh, Barbara Bach uh, uh, in that movie. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? That's, or as we was... like to refer to the anti-Denise Richards. <laughs> you know, the, the best thing the best thing about Denise Richards uh, was Left and right. uh, a, a throwaway line, a throwaway line in Psych. I don't know if you guys ever saw this episode, yeah. but they, they, somebody said, that well, that's unbelievable. And they, then the aside was, well, not as unbelievable as Denise Richards as a nuclear physicist. <laughs> <laughs> There's 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 a great one. I remember I was working I was working at Davis rent a car and one of the girls had gone out with a friend of mine uh, on a date and they had gone to see a view to a kill and her entire review consisted if Tanya Roberts said oh James one more time and that's when I first started knowing like okay it's okay to pick on some of this stuff and still love James Bond oh yeah. That is that is very true, and we've done some of that as we're working our way through the series. We're and, not... and and also just quick way of background. I've read uh, I read all the Fleming novels, uh, almost all of the Gardeners, uh, and took a stab at something that came after and didn't didn't really jive with it too much. So I uh, uh, have a bunch of different approaches to this this kind of material. Now I, I read uh, License Renewed by Gardner. Yeah. which I think was his first. It was. And quite honestly, I found it to be a little dry and uh, 
like it didn't it didn't capture the feel of Bond for me. So I've I've never gotten into the novels quite so much, and maybe that's because my image of Bond was more formed by the movies. Maybe if I had read well, Fleming, I, think, I would have been listen, more. I think yeah, I'll tell you truthfully. I think that that Gardner did a great job of uh, capturing and slightly updating Fleming. Uh, I, and I had read all the I had read all the Fleming stuff before I got to Gardner. Uh, I had read them late in high school, and Gardner came out my first year of college. Okay, so now, for your eyes only, clearly you saw it on opening day. Yes, I did. How about you two guys? When did you first see this? When did this one come out, Paul? 79? 19, 1981, I believe. I was barely two. <laughs> that makes me you sick. You, you, you realized that, right? So, yeah, so that's an excuse? <laughs> Jeff, saw, Jeff went to see Bond at three. I was like two and a half, maybe. Uh, well, you know... I. I'm adopted, so you know I had there was a transition period, 18 months it was finalized. I don't think my folks were ready to take me to the movies yet. I think my first movie in the theater was E.T. Maybe Follow That Bird. I can't remember. So there you go. But uh, I, this was definitely a cable one for me. I saw this in the theater. This was this was the first one I decided I wanted to go see. Nice. At the tender right. age of 10. Uh, so will you well, stop at the age thing? Huh? What? <laughs> Get off my freaking lawn. So yeah, I, I, you know, I honestly do not remember seeing this in the movie theater, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I've seen every Bond film in the movie theater, uh, starting with uh, starting with Diamonds Are Forever. Wow. Okay. Good run. So yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw this, but I don't have an actual memory of it. But just there's there's a lot in this movie to not remember. See, I I think this was a really solid movie to, to I really, start off I see, with. I really yeah. I really I, like this movie, but there's all sorts of stuff that we can that you can hang hang on this one. Well, it's I, I feel like this it, this is this is Roger Moore's last superlative effort as Bond. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and I think the movie the movie is I think it's well made I think it's it's you know fairly well put together it does have that bond tendency that we've talked about when we've reviewed some of the past ones where you have to kind of just go along for the ride and not worry about okay why are they now why are they at the Olympics and why are they here and why are they there you got you got to just let that go but yeah, if you could, see that's the part that the writer in me I can't let it go. <laughs> See, there's stuff like individual scene by scene we can do. Casting Lynn Holly Johnson, different story, you know. I I don't hate her in this movie. I know a lot of people have a, have a huge problem. She, she's acting like a teenager, a teenager. She was. She's supposed to be like 17, 18 years old. It, well, yeah, a, a teenager that's clearly been handed a lot of stuff and has no compunction about how she feels. Which means she's basically like a 2020 TikTok teenager. So it's you know it's kind of prescient, I guess. Well, that's a, and that's a disturbingly correct analogy. That's, that's very very good. But they were and, they and, were they were well. It was well thought out enough that they had Roger Moore, who's probably about 50 at this point. Uh, <laughs> they had him say, "No, you know, I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not gonna sleep with Come you." Come along and I'll buy you an ice cream. You know, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I yeah. thought that was I thought that was 
key that, that you know you you bond is a dog we all know it but he but even he's got certain standards that he's not going to uh break yeah i accept yeah. that yeah that, that's a very good point let's and, can, can we talk a little bit about the start of the movie yes, oh yeah absolutely. i think we're going to talk more than a little bit about the, the start the big middle finger to mcclory absolutely yeah because i think that i think that that's the, the the fascinating thing about that is they don't say it's Blofeld. They don't say we're never going to use Spectre again until you die and we buy the rights. Um, they, 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 they don't do that. And they do, but they make it clear. I mean, you start with the, you start with the tombstone for, for, uh, for, uh, Teresa Bond's wife. Um, you start with the Blofeld and the cat, you know, and it, it's just, it's apparent what it is. And, as a kid who grew up with the Spectre uh, Connery movies on TV, I was really disappointed by that. I didn't really? know I didn't know any of the I didn't know any of the background going on at the time. I didn't either, but I loved it. I have to start from the start. I, I got such a kick out of it. I remember this being on HBO, and I just I would watch that opening scene over and over again when they would replay the movie. <laughs> I just thought it was good. I still never understood why he was going to buy him a delicatessen in right. stainless okay. steel. Really, that was the thing. Stainless steel was Blofeld that stupid. Well, if you're trying to pee pee on the uh, guy who's been taking you to court, then yeah, uh, right. then he is. <laughs> so <laughs> my my favorite bit of that whole opening scene, though, it's the fact that they directly acknowledge that yes, Bond was married and and Tracy's dead. But it's not even that. It's when he gets on the helicopter and you just see the priest. Right. <laughs> give him the blessing. It's like, that's a little ominous. <laughs> you know, it's like when I was a kid, I wondered, was the priest in on it? And he knew that that was the yeah, end? or he was I, th- just... I think he did know. I think he did know. Because otherwise, why is he? I mean, he could just be giving Bond the blessing every time he leaves because he knows what he does for a living. I guess Bond's a Catholic because he didn't do a Protestant he didn't go right to left. He didn't or, left to or, right. Or is it? Or is it that Tracy was? I think it's that Tracy was. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. But it starts off. The scene starts off very somber at, at Tracy's grave, which I liked, and then it, it quickly turns around once he's on the uh, helicopter. And I have to say, you know, just to get on it early, I thought this score was kind of a little schizophrenic it changes throughout the movie as far as tone goes (laughs) sometimes to its detriment but i loved the score in this in that opening sequence how once he disconnects the uh the the remote control all of a sudden it just kicks in and you start hearing that upbeat james bond theme you know that's been stylized to the 1981 i love it and it just you know but it's 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 to me, it, it totally energized the scene. The best, the best variation of that for for my money, the best variation of that was Marvin Hamlish's Bond seventy seven in Spy Who Loved Me, uh, where, that's go, going on during the underwater stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I gotta agree, the music in that part of the film, and of course the the opening song, uh, I just I just freaking love. Uh, but it is all over the place in the movie, and I don't know. You know, you know, it's the more you learn about filmmaking, you learn that sometimes the composer isn't in control of a particular scene and they say, do something else or do this, that, that, you know, because I've watched a fair number of movies that Bill Conti did the music for, uh, you know, starting with Rocky, of course. And and they're not usually so all over the place. No, the, 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 if you listen to the score in Rocky, it is 
I mean, it, it changes in tone for different scenes, but it is very appropriate in every scene well, it's in. Well, yeah, appropriate appropriate being the key word, where in, in Fury Eyes Only, it's a little, like, it's, it. I mean, I'm going to exaggerate here, but it's like almost like TV sad trombone at times. I mean, <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. Well, there, know, there's also like a couple so of action sequences where it feels like uh, like TV, you know, like, like you're watching the A-Team, the way the yeah. soundtrack goes. Yeah. Hope we're not picking on Mike Post. No, you can't pick on Mike. Not, Post. not at all. I'm just, we, but we are comparing. Yes. Tele, you know, it's your, it's your uh, film in eighties TV. I understand. Yeah, exactly. And again, is that just a is that just a product of the time though? Too. I mean, because uh, well, uh, yeah, I, that's Chris. That's a that's a very that's a very fair question, isn't it? I, I think so. I mean, it's that we're eighty two is. We're not quite the 80s yet. I don't think we really hit the 80s until 84, really, in terms of the overall aesthetic. Because I mean, it's still got bell bottoms on in this, so we're not we're not quite there yet. So you still you get that bleed over from the the disco kid 70s, starting to get into the synthesizer 80s, and then you know, so it's just one of those weird transitional years, I guess. And yet, when he arrives at the office. He still has a hat. Yeah, he does. You never see it on him, but he's got a hat. So Roger Moore, just by the way, was born in 1927. So he would have been 54 when they made this, which for James Bond is pretty, you know, pretty long in the tooth. And I remember when this movie came out, you know, back then when you'd you'd pick up the Friday newspaper and it would have the reviews of the movies that, that opened that week. And I remember them saying... In the review for this movie, Roger Moore still looking fit, you know, despite the fact that he's getting up there in years. And he did. He he was still able to play Bond at this point. Yeah, and one good. of the reasons why I do think, and you know, we're going to get to these movies eventually. But once one of the reasons why I do think Octopussy and and uh, A View to a Kill start to kind of take that downward slide is because he does start looking closer yeah. to his age. He still looks yeah. good, but he doesn't Cla- look James Bond age isn't, anymore. Isn't holding up by those two, so. Yeah, but I, you know, just to just to kind of close out the thought, I love that opening sequence. I do too. Uh, you know, and and I, I I do think you know as you said, Chris, that it's just outright just giving the middle finger to McClory. You know, and, when he when he reaches over and rubs his head, keep your hair on. You know that yeah. part. I mean, it's it's just. And, and you know what? And I can't blame him. I mean, it's such a huge property and. You can't let one person hold your whole franchise hostage over one character. Uh, so, you know, I don't blame him. And the more when I watch it even more now as an adult and knowing that I just I chuckle every time he goes down that smokestack. I mean, why not? It's hilarious, especially after the first decade, almost decade and a half of those movies. It's all about him. And it's just bye. See you later. Now, the smokestack. Is that like a sanitation plant where they're saying we're throwing them out with the garbage? Because that's kind of the way I view that. Well, what part of England is it in? Is it in one of the... Uh, like I know. know. Get Andrew Leyland I don't know. <laughs> we need Andy Leyland on. You should have got him on for this one. should have got him on for all of them. Um, I don't know. It, it could be. It could be an auto, a metal works. I mean, they, they do a lot of... There's a lot of manufacturing in, in England. Yeah, well, like so. I said, in my mind, I see it as a sanitation plant because I feel like they're throwing McClory's work out with the garbage. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, that's the message I take from it. Now, one of the things in this movie that we did lose is Bernard Lee died 
shortly before they started filming. And interestingly, Cubby Broccoli would not allow them to recast the role. That's why we have the minister instead of him. Frederick Ray, the minister of defense. Yes. Right? Yeah. I, you know, it, and there's, honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. If you got to give a little breathing room for a guy that's been with you for, geez, I don't even, how many, how many does he go back to? Is well, this is well. the 12th well, film. Yeah, I mean, so that's 11 films. You can, you can let it breathe. And, you can have and, somebody else do it. And listen, I I grew to love Judy Dench as M. Oh yeah. But Bernard Lee was M. Yeah. It took it took me a little while to get used to Judy Dench as M. Oh yeah. Uh, I think was it in Goldeneye the first time? Goldeneye, yes. yeah. And in hindsight, like seeing it the first time, it to me it was it was kind of a, a you know a rude awakening. But in, once I got used to her, even going back, I'm fine with her portrayal in that movie. It wasn't like she had to grow into the part. I had to grow in to accept her in the part. Sure. Well, she was a, kind of the only thing you could really do to have... I mean, that was it was a long time between Bonds by the time Goldeneye came out, right? That was what? Yes. It was 91 to 90... Oh, no, 89 to 94. Yeah, I mean, 94 right? or 95, the, the, I don't remember. Box yeah, office-wise, office uh, License to Kill was was as close to a franchise killer as we get in Bond. Yeah, but we had but, Timothy Dalton in between those as well. Yeah, but, it, I mean, she was kind of, if you're going to reinvent Bond like you do almost every decade, it's kind of the perfect way to go with her being, I'm a kind of a Margaret Thatcher-esque type, and yeah. I'm not going to take any of your BS, because I know exactly what you are, and I'm going to expect you to do your job. <laughs> so, but we did we did lose out on some of the you know the interaction between Moore and, and Lee, and that's that's the only place where you know where it affected this particular movie. Yeah, I mean, because this one is, and and we have said there's some some head scratching stuff in terms of where the plot goes um, and the things you just have to let Bond be Bond, and it, and it happens. But this one is is so stripped down, and at times it's so raw. Like you've got your background on on Skype as Bond kicking over the the car over the cliff, and that's why. Like when people say, "Oh, Roger Moore wasn't a good Bond," I'm like, "Go watch this one, and watch how he is in this one." For Bond rugged for rugged be, Bond, this is this he, is the only scene that compares yeah. to this is when he uh, throws the guy off the building in uh, "The Spy Who Loved Me" the, with the, the tie the tie scene. Well, yeah. see, that's why I like Roger Moore. Like, I love the one-liners, don't get me wrong. Not all of them land. I like Disco Bond. I, I even like the safari suits, as horrible-looking as they are. Um, but when he wants to be raw, he can be real, real raw. Like I agree. As raw as Connery. And this is something, like, just looking at this, I can see Daniel Craig doing the exact same thing as what oh, he's yeah. doing. In this. I agree. Like, even with the, even with the somewhat crappy one liner afterwards. Well, I don't know if if Craig could pull off the one liners the way Moore he did. He could. It would be probably delivered differently, but he definitely would. So, it's a know. much more grounded Bond movie, particularly following Moonraker. Well, I kind of. Well, that was that was that was a conscious effort by the production. They they said. You know, if if you you read any of the notes on this, they said if we wanted to continue in the direction we were going, we needed to really go into ludicrous. So rather than do that, we pulled it back and we didn't give him as many gadgets as we've been giving him, and we gave him a much smaller plot. It isn't the world is at stake now; it's just this, uh, you know, this whatever weapon that that got and, stolen. And, 
I think that's a very good, they're very good point, Paul. And I think one of the things about it, I, and, and I'm sorry, I just keep on staring at JW Pepper and David. <laughs> I know, I've been trying not to and, laugh. And, and I'm sorry, I've just got a break now. I got to get it out. I get it, got to get it out of my system. I'm that's really what sorry. this movie needed. The but, but, well, we got the double take guy in this one. Yeah, right? just like, <laughs> I just, it's just so great. Um, and, you know, and I will tell you time and again, that I hate the silly stuff in the Bond movies and I love the serious stuff. And yet I love J.W. Pepper. <laughs> so I totally admit I'm a walking contradiction. Well, so, David's so, the biggest J.W. Pepper fan I know, so you'll well, have to compete great, with him on man. that We one. will definitely get along. That's Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't mind the silly stuff except when it gets to the ridiculous, like the bird double take. Uh, Oct- uh, and, uh, Octopussy, where he tells the, the Wodehouse way to dogs, he tells the tiger to sit and yeah. emphasizes the T. I hate that crap. Um, but uh, where where Bond is making the joke, I love it. Where Bond is the sort of the butt of the joke, mm-hmm. it diminishes the franchise. Well, yes. I'll give you that. Yeah, I've yeah. mentioned in some of our past reviews, I don't like when they make Bond look hapless in any way. Never. There's been a couple of scenes in in some previous movies that I've criticized where somebody got the jump on him too easily or he trusted somebody he shouldn't have. And that should never be James Bond. James Bond is always one step ahead of everybody else. Yeah, I think that might be why I don't really like Thunderball. I feel like he's always behind the eight ball that from the moment where he's in the spire and he's getting jacked up. It's like, I don't know if I buy that. Well, I, I never again, like, and we, I think we discussed it when we did cover that one. I never like when he's put into a bad position, and the only reason he gets gets out is because of either luck or somebody else helped him, which is what happened in that instance. Yes. Because yeah. you should never, Bond should always be getting out through his own ingenuity and his own uh, resourcefulness. But back to back to the grit of of, of Connery, uh, and anytime I, to me it's impossible to talk about this movie and not focus on that scene behind you, Paul, where he's running up the stairs at flight after flight of stairs as a guy's driving away up, up the windy road in the car. He comes out, he comes out at the end of the tunnel and in, in, in like, there's like no wiggle room for the car and he's shooting straight at it, hits the guy, the guy spins out, goes to the, goes to the cliff. And then he starts talking to him. He tosses that little pin on him and then kicks the car over the cliff. Yeah, I almost felt like throwing the pin on him was going to weigh the car down. Like throwing the pin was going to be enough to make it fall. And Uh, you know what? That's another way you could have played it, too, where it's just so precarious. He just throws that one little ounce of weight in and it goes No, it's it's better that he had to kick it. It's better that it's a deliberate action. But it's it's, it's also developed. It isn't just that scene because that comes very shortly after he ran down. I don't remember the character's name. The uh, Countess. uh, What's that? Lisi. Lisa. Liesel, excuse me. Uh, so, and, and you could see when that when that scene happened, you could see the uh, the emotion in Moore's face. I thought he he played the part very well there. Yeah. So so it really impacted him. And then when the car was in that position, at least in my mind, you know, reading into the character, he pushed the car like he did because that happened. Like he might yeah. he might have brought him in, in alive if not for that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, when when Bond gets angry, you don't you don't want to be in his way. 
Well, we, we've talked about that with some out. films that that you know you, you need you need to earn the moment, and I thought that build up earned that moment. It isn't just him being ruthless; it's him being ruthless with a purpose and a reason. Yeah, yeah. it. I I got to bring up a point. This one. As stripped down as it is, it does still try to hit all of those exotic beats. We go underwater. He's on skis. You know, it's it's trying to grab as much as it can from the previous movies, which I have no problem with, because this is a very different him skiing scene than any of the other ones. You know, it's a little more raw, obviously. Um, and the underwater, it's not like The Spy Who Loved Me. Where it's like, all right, we're in the Lotus. This is awesome. It's, oh, <laughs> crap. We're down here and we got to figure out what's going on, you know? So. Well, uh, if you remember, that... there was the scene in The Spy Who Loved Me at the beginning, before the uh, Union Jack, when he turns around on the skis at full speed. Yeah. Which is absolutely defying the law of physics <laughs> in at least in this one in the ski scenes they felt it it also felt more grounded it felt like it was choreographed more realistically and if i could put that in air quotes yeah and, and the guy's not carrying a sniper rifle he's got the you know the um what was it the uh biathlon try i don't even know which event it is he's you know he's i think it's a triathlon. triathlon oh it's by okay biathlon. yeah the the biathlon rifle, which is not, I mean, that's not a high-powered rifle, you know? So it's, I don't know, it's just a little bit different. I, I also think it, it makes, I hesitate to say this, but it does make a more realistic use of the underwater stuff. It, it is, yes. it, it follows what you what you said about it being stripped down uh, to that extent that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all science fiction-y. No, it was a, a like a, a realistic looking two person submersible, and the underwater gear that they need is really really bulky. You know, yeah. they're not they're not really faking anything. I'm I'm sure that they've widened the underwater set so that they can get through it, but it's claustrophobic. Yeah, you know. And then then one of the things you know we keep hearkening back to prior movies, the underwater scene in Thunderball, while spectacular just feels like it is never ending. Oh god, yeah. So this yeah. this one does not have that. Yeah, I think I think one time I saw that they went to commercial and came back and it was still in that scene. It just goes on and on and yeah. on. It's kind of you kind of lose the sense of urgency at that point. The, the so, thing and, that dis- distracted ahead, me is, you know, Julian Glover. <laughs> now as an adult, all I keep saying to myself is General Veers. Or Maester Picel. But when he comes out of the submarine and, you know, they detect him, he's, oh, we have visitors or whatever it was. All I kept thinking is Bond came out of the submarine too soon. He's as clumsy as he is stupid. <laughs> well, he's, he's also uh, in, in Indiana Jones 3 there. You know? That's so, right. He's he's a great character actor. I mean, I I just I just saw him in Spies of Warsaw, which is a four part uh, British series with uh, David Tennant as a French spy. I'm making a note of that. Me too. Awesome. Yeah, it's immediately pre World War II, and he's he's the French uh, spy who believes that the uh, Nazis are going to make a move, and everybody else on his side is more French. <laughs> and just just to you know to point out things that just kind of stay with you. And this one was not in a good way. 
I personally never liked when when they're doing the scene with with the computer to try and create the image. I never liked when he says, "Oh, the glasses are octagonal." That just always bothered me. I don't know. I don't think that's something even Bond wouldn't wouldn't get that particular. <laughs> No, I think he thing. would. I think he would. Yeah, he I, knows, I'm okay with that. He knows everything about everything. He knows every vintage wine and what the best food is. Of course, he's gonna, He's not an idiot. He's going to know the word octagonal. He might know the word, but he, I don't. Th- I don't see him as having had the opportunity or the t- the chance to have sat there and counted the number of sides on the guy's glasses. How old were you when this movie came out, Paul? Uh, eighteen. Okay, so I would say. In the 80s, many things were octagonal, so it's acceptable that he knew that. <laughs> Stop signs. Stop signs, yes. Stop signs. And, and, but, but, and yet it never bothered me when he makes the nose go too far yeah. in trying to that's recreate it. That, that I found comical. Kind of funny how that's where they got the idea for the wee me's later on. <laughs> uh, what, what did we think of... Uh, Carol Bouquet and her uh, role. I I like Melina. Um, and again, it's basically Tilly Masterson again. Um, with a crossbow. With a crossbow instead of a rifle. Um, but, and again, she's not the best actress. She's not the best looking Bond girl. But from the moment you see her family gunned down and they do that zoom in on her eyes... I, I'm totally on board with her. Yeah, she. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Christopher. She she fits the part, and there's something visually compelling that makes up for the lack of classic beauty. She's realistic and she's competent. Yes. And a, again, starting starting, you know, my I won't say adult because I was 13, but my going to Bond movies with friends rather than my family. The competent thing, I didn't realize it for a, year, a few years, but the competent thing absolutely resonated with me. Mm. So I think that appeals there. I, I thought she was a compelling character. I, I agree with you, with you about the, the motivation of the character. I did kind of feel like they laid it on a little thick in the, in the dialogue that she has to constantly mention that, you know, it, it's more important to her because she's Greek. Yes. You, know, you know what? Anybody would be bothered by it. I don't care what your heritage is. You just had your parents gunned down in front of you. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're Greek. You'd, <laughs> whatever nationality you are, you'd still want to kill those well, people. There's a, there's a movie. Th- there's a movie and TV thing, and you see it a lot on Star Trek: The Next Generation, where people think saying something makes it true, and if we say it a lot, it's even more true. Well, isn't that the rule and of advertising? You have to say it three times. And that's and I was just going to say, but that's to me, her saying she's Greek. That was like every fourth line of dialogue. It was like to, back to Tanya Roberts with O. James. It came out that many times. I don't know how many light eyed Greeks there are out there. But she's half English, right? Oh, that's uh, right. Aha. Ah, OK, fair enough. Plot hole explained. So did you, or, or, and, and, and Paul, you said you didn't. But Christopher and David, did you? Are you guys familiar with the the, the books? Uh, I didn't read this one, but I read a couple of the Ian Fleming ones, and I read a ton of the John Gardner ones. I've read a couple of the Ian Fleming ones as well. I'm still working my way through all the actual Ian Fleming stuff. What's What's interesting is is for me that this is it's got elements of two of the short stories. If for your eyes only, it was a book of short stories. 
and Risico was one of them, and For Your Eyes Only. And among the other titles, From a View to a Kill, which has nothing to do with the movie, <laughs> and Quantum of Solace yeah. also, also comes from that. There's one other one called The Hildebrandt Rarities. Um, four of the plots from that came from the McClory, Whittingham, Fleming collaboration for the TV oh. show. Now, according to Wikipedia, there's elements in this movie that come from the novels Live and Let Die, Goldfinger, and On Our Majesty's Secret Service. But it does not, <coughs> excuse me, it does not delineate which sequences are inspired well, by those. That that's, you know, what's really funny about that is it's been forever since I've read those books. I mean, I was I was in high school, so that's like 109 years ago. And, and it, but it really thankfully it, someone's my was, age. That would be really worth it. Total aside here, but I love going to meetings at church because I lower the demographic age. I'm the <laughs> I feel the same way when I go to mass. It's like, ooh, me and my wife just brought the median age down about seven or eight years, maybe. Yeah, I'm like the, I'm like I'm literally the youngest committee head. <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, to me, there's that going back again to the scene that I keep talking about. Um, there's real elements of, of novel bond in this, the, uh, the monastery setting, the fact that it is not the end of the world if they don't succeed with this. Um, there's, there's some really yeah, Christopher, you said stripped down. I, I, I was my alternate version is just down to earth uh, sure. version. Yeah. Uh, of course, anything's freaking down to earth after Moonraker. Yeah. But, but, um, but, and I think that that was a wise decision because it really was. If you kept on falling prey to this bigger is better, what are you going to do? Yeah. At, at some point. At, the Bond movies, yes, they're travelogues in their high intensity and they're amplified to the nth degree. But at the end of the day, if you don't care about what Bond's doing and who the supporting characters are, <clears throat> die another day, um, then it really doesn't matter. So, yeah, you have to... And I, and I think that's why the, the Craig Bonds have resonated with people a lot, too, because it's really about him and the interactions that he's having instead of just the big set pieces and the end of the world type stuff. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. Um, like if you're if, you know, not to get off this film, but if you talk about the fast running sequence in, in, in Casino Royale, Oh God. So good. Okay, super physically fit guy, but the bad guy's able to do it just the same as bond. Yeah. Okay. In a different These way. Are all, yeah, in a different way. But there's and there's physical consequences when Bond makes a jump and, and almost misses and you can feel it hurt. Yeah, oh yeah, oh okay? yeah. So it's it's peak human but not superhuman. It's not impossible. We just saw a guy do it. Yeah. So so I saw so that to me that's back to this scene and back to the whole grid of this movie. Um and I I have a real soft spot for this movie, even with the things that I'll complain about. Yeah, it's not even a soft spot for me. This is this is a this and Spy Who Loved Me and um, Live and Let Die. I, I mean, those I can watch over and over and over again for, from the the more years. Yeah, well, from from the more films, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, no question, is my favorite of the bunch. 
But then I was thinking about it before we started recording, and I was trying to decide, and I was... It was basically like the flip of a coin between this and Live and Let Die as far as my second favorite. I can't tell you which one is my second. <sighs> Live and Let Die gets the edge for me just because of, you know, I love Mr. Big. I love the whole thing. But Live and Let Die <laughs> is the first Bond film that I saw with friends instead of family. Ah, uh, there you go. So it has a soft spot for, for that reason as well. Plus yeah. it's got the Uncola Nut guy in it. Uncola Nut. It's got, there's a lot of things going for that Jeffrey, one, but we've already Jeffrey covered that. What? what was Jeffrey, what was his name, Jeffrey? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, man, he was so great. <laughs> was I Eric think... supposed to originally be Jaws? The KGB guy? Who know. had the same background as Vargas and Thunderbolt. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He doesn't have sex with girls. Because he seems to have the same mannerisms as Jaws. Interesting. Mm. Interesting, interesting. It's very possible. I mean, this well, this film was supposed to be after The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. The only reason that, that they didn't do this one was because Star Wars came out and was so popular yeah. that we need to do Space Bond. <laughs> now, Bond in space! But it is interesting, though, because Moonraker did very well in the box office. So it's a little surprising that the production crew team, whatever you want to call it, had the foresight or the, you know, the intelligence to say, let's scale it down. Because well, after that movie was a financial success, you could easily see them saying bigger is better. She's come up with something well, bigger than Moonraker now. Well, you know what? Eon Productions also could have said, you know what? The last one cost a lot of money. Can we cut that budget down a little bit? <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, that's a very that's a very good point. What what kind of shape uh, was United Artists already tanking by that point? Well, I Had think this is the that? last one before oh, MGM I, came in, right? I don't know. I don't know. I, don't I, th- know. I think Octopus. I, mean, I think when Octopus came. United Artists was poorly run for decades, but I don't think it had quite started tanking yet at that point. I don't know. Well, well this one is... had, just as an aside, had a budget of $28 million. Which uh, is, a, I mean, for 82, that's... $18 million more than Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good amount of money. But again, it's there's not really any major special effects. It's the stunt work in this one. Well, Moonraker's production was... Thirty-four million, so they did pull there it back go. six million. Yeah, that's six million in, uh, you know, the uh, motion control and the model work and all that. And I mean, it's on screen, like we've said. It's it, those effects are great. And according to you know, if we can trust the Wikipedia numbers, this was a huge success. Twenty-eight million to produce it, one hundred ninety-five point three million in the box office. Worldwide or U.S.? It doesn't specify. It just probably, says box office. Probably but, worldwide. But at, in 1981, worldwide was not as significant as it is now. No, but I can't see a Bond movie, in the, Bond movie from that period doing $200 million in 82. That's an insane amount. So that has to be worldwide. Well, which is good. Take, we're going to take a quick look at Box Office Mojo and see what it tells us about. Nope, I can't get through to it right now. 
uh, whatever reason. I can't. The site was unavailable to me. So we're going to just speculate that it's worldwide, but I still think, again, worldwide in 1981 did not mean what worldwide means in 2020. Right now. Well, you know what? Nothing means anything in 2020. Worldwide (laughs) in 1981 didn't mean what it meant in 2019. True. Considering that... Do you guys guys have favorite parts of this movie? Like, what's your... Something you just say automatically? Like, I obviously am fixated on that one scene, but do you... Oh yeah, the, the the opening credit scene, him kicking the um, kicking the car over. I love the fight on the hockey rink. Okay. I know it's I know it's punctuated with the the goal sounding every time he knocks somebody in, but again, that's one of those things that have we seen James Bond fight in a hockey rink with a bunch of guys in hockey gear while he doesn't have skates on? It's like that's just interesting to me because I hadn't seen it before. It's different. I would have liked that scene a little bit more if they had made the if they hadn't done the goal sound. Not my favorite scene, but the scene that always stuck with me in this is when Molina's parents are killed. Oh, I guess because I was ten years old when I saw it, and it was like, oh, that was the most horrible thing you could imagine happening. Yeah, sure. I think that's a very that's a very good point, and I do think that scene's powerful. It is. Oh, what about you? Well, no, for me, it's, it's no. There's no question about it. The opening sequence is it, it. You can only go down from there. Thankfully, this movie does not go down much, so it still keep kept me the whole way through. And this is very high on my Bond list. Let's put it that way. Uh, despite oh, the him, fact that the opening was the best of part of the movie, in my opinion, him realistically scaling a mountain face. You know, there's no little zip thing to take him up or anything. It's him and it's not an easy scale. No, it's not, it's not. easy. If he slips I, at all, he's toast. I get a kick, though, like in the underwater scenes when it's not obvious based on the body type so much, but it's just obvious on the way the fil- they filmed it is every once in a while you zoom into a close-up of Roger Moore's face, then you show him swimming very deftly underwater from behind, then you show a close-up of his face again, then you show him from the side swimming away, but you don't see his face at all. <laughs> I just I get a kick out of that. Well, what can you do? And that whole way that he's going to murder them by dragging them behind the boat, and cutting them up on the coral. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, again, this one's gritty. That's pretty, that's pretty visceral. Yeah. It's gritty. It's This one is, is gritty, even with the goofiness in it. And for some reason, I got a vibe from this movie of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Where he teams up with basically another bunch of criminals to another. storm a mountain retreat. There you go. I, I, I hadn't even put that's, that together. That's really pretty good. I, I I hadn't either. I like that now. Well, we yeah. should have seen it coming because they referenced Tracy right, right. at the end of the movie. Hey, I'm wondering if, that, if there was maybe a little some intent to be foreshadowing there. Well, like I, that I, one's that, well, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is kind of stripped down too, other than the weird mind control plot. Well, I mean, that's a it's a similar path, though, where they went, you know, to from Thunderball to You Only Live Twice, which got a little. I love You Only Live Twice, but it got a little outrageous with the space uh, kidnapping and and the the, the what you call it the volcano that that opens up and everything. So don't, hey, don't insult the volcano base. I mean, come on. But no, all I'm saying is it went a little far into you know you have to accept this as reality. And then they scaled it back somewhat 
for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Then they went a little crazy again with Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> but, you know, that's it, it's one of the things I enjoy about Bond in general, though, is I almost feel like it's one of those properties where it's got enough to it that you can accept it in many different formats. They can get science fiction-y with it if they do it well. They can be purely gritty and action-adventure-ish. And they can be, and they can work in comedy as well. But, you know, yeah. you, the whole the whole thing is, you know, you need, you need to, to do those things well with it, but the character can sustain all of it. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. The one thing that I think that we've... Uh danced around so far we've talked about the music we've talked about the pre-credit sequence but we haven't talked about the credit sequence Sheena the Easton. opening titles the only time we see the person singing the bond theme yeah i i think that the theme is haunting is my, my description for it i think her voice is beautiful in it i think the music and just the background music the way it, it kind of the way it's orchestrated, I, I really just enjoy it. Uh, anybody know off the top of your head what it lost best song to at the Academy Awards? And was it what year is it? 1981. 82? 81 wasn't Chariots of Fire, was it? No. What was it? Arthur's theme. Oh, wow. Christopher Cross. Well, Christopher Cross was winning every freaking award in about a two-year period then, so why not? Still not as horrendous as Star Wars losing to uh, Woody Allen, so whatever. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, I haven't watched the Academy Awards since then. Literally, <laughs> I we when I, it, to, literally we had we my my friends we had started having a, a party at my friend's house, uh, my best friend's house every year for the Academy Awards, and, and Star Wars lost to Annie Hall, and I literally have never watched it since. <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, see. The phrase "get over it" has no meaning to me. <laughs> well, that's that's a conversation we had last week, also. <laughs> Apparently, we, we are we are known to hold grudges for various things. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I I stayed with the Academy Awards until Chariots of Fire won. That's when I, it lost me. You know, let's let's talk about the, let's talk about this a little bit further. Do you, do all you guys, David? Do you like do you like the theme? Oh, I think it's a very good theme. Uh, here's the thing with me, I, and, and I know I'm kind of an outlier in this. The Bond themes, usually to me, if they're conveying the mood, great. If they're showing me some beautiful women, great. There's not many of them that I would want to listen to outside of the film. Um, I, like, I have a very small handful. Okay, um, what, Live and Let Die? Live, live and Let Die, because that's a rock and roll song. Yeah. Um, you know my name. You know my I think name. That's, that's one. That one's great. Um, Living daylights. Living daylights is great. Yeah. I love the. I love the man with the golden gun. I'm an outlier on that one. I think that one's a blast. Yeah, I like that one too. See, I, I have like, a. Um, I have a CD that I made which has each theme song on it, and even even never say never again. I can listen to the theme song and I'm fine. Yeah. But once we get to <laughs> yeah. die another day, it's like I have to skip to the next song. I can't listen to that crap. Yeah, that auto tune crap. Like that. I don't like. I don't like Quantum of Solace. Oh, uh, I, yeah, the, I, uh, the I think. I think, not... I think that Spectre made me wonder what kind of pictures he had of people. Um, yeah, that one's <laughs> not great. And, and, and you know, and, and considering, and part of the thing that was really working against that for me, uh, that I have to be fair about. Uh, I don't like that movie at all. 
but one of the things that I, I probably was working against it for me as I was so happy that somebody finally was saying Spectre out loud that I probably went into that movie wanting too much. But, uh, uh, but back to this thing, Paul, you, you obviously said you liked it. What did you say haunting? Was that the word you used? Yeah. I think now, obviously it's a different, entirely different riff than Conti's Rocky theme. But I, I actually think that is, the theme is the high point of the movie musically. I really think it's outstanding. Yeah, well, you know, we talked earlier about how the set, the score in the film is erratic. Yeah. I'll, use, I'll use that word now. And there's moments of it which I think really come off well. And then there's the moments where I said, you know, I said it seems like an 80s yeah. uh, action show. And it's not to criticize 80s action shows so much as to say they would often reuse themes. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they weren't going to write a new score for every episode. I, I think that's something yeah. that didn't happen until much, much later, you know, maybe with Michael Giacchino on Lost. But, you, you, didn't re, you know, you didn't really see that in shows. They would have their, their standard action music or the standard theme that would be, you know, BA's music on the A-team yeah. or whatever. And and you'd, you'd, you'd shoehorn it into a scene. In the action scenes in this movie, the music felt shoehorned in a little bit to me. Well, we're about 20 years into the franchise at this point, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly 20 years, I would I Yeah, think. from Dr. No, yes. Um, so by that point, you've got that whole entire back catalog that they have the rights to. And it. And again, that might be a production thing where Eon is saying, plug this in here, plug this in here, because we don't need to write new score. We need our... But, but you, and, you know what, Chris? I'm not going to accept that, because here's, here's my counter to that. Uh, John Williams has been revamping the Star Wars themes for every movie that came out since, every sequel that came out since, without totally reusing the same music ever, even though he uses the same themes. But you know what? All I'm saying is Bill Conti, who was a very talented composer, could take those James Bond theme tropes and work them in in a way where it plays to the the action sequences. If we're going to talk about that, we know there is an issue of of servicing of fan service for your for your diehards, and they're they're going to expect certain things. The uh, the 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 secondary theme that they call 007, um, you know the dun 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 that they you hear that in a lot of movies. Just go um, go back to the Thunderball underwater scene when they just do that just endlessly do over and over <laughs> and over. But but. <laughs> you, you get into it, you get into it, and some nuance and revitalization of that stuff is okay. Where I think using the and doing so brilliantly was making us wait the very last scene in Casino Royale for him to say Bond, James Bond. Yeah. And, and then have the music the theme come in. And, yeah, I, I agree. And, and and that was phenomenal. And of course, you know, first off, you know, no more Derek Meddings at that point. They're separating themselves from that. But the fact that they're there, the animation was basically an explosion of the original dust jacket art. Yeah, that title sequence, is, and I'm sure we'll get was, there, is, is yeah. 
great. I, if, if, if you guys could put up with me again, I'd love to be back when you guys talk about that one. Oh, yeah. Just just let, let me know which ones you want to be with us. You know, we're, we're going forward consecutively from here. The only one that, that we've already done that has not come out yet is Never Say Never Again. Uh, we did that quite a while ago before we started the actual retrospective episodes. Uh, so that's my favorite. Let's do that one again. That was your, that was your Jaws four. Uh, there was, my Jaws four. You know, there was there's one bit of music I like in that, and I actually really like that movie except for the music um, and if, and the fact that they couldn't use the gun barrel logo. Um, there's a great bit where the where Barbara Carrera's character is running away and jumping in the car and Connery comes running down the stairs and there's just such a great bass riff. And that's literally the only music I like in that movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but well, we're, we're going to, we're going to get to the point where we're actually past that uh, chronologically anyway, because that opens... so you'll insert, you'll insert that in the, in the, in the run then. I, I'll post something on the Facebook page to let everybody know where it is if they okay, want to good. find it. All right. All right, uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to – because, I mean, we're not just doing James Bond. We're just interspersing these with other films anyway. Let me, let me, uh, let me ask you a question about this uh, because, uh, Paul, as you mentioned, I have been doing this survey uh, on my Facebook page. It's just you know non-scientific, just asking people, uh, you know, what's your favorite Bond? What's your favorite Bond villain? And your favorite Bond movie, uh, and I'm gonna do uh, favorite Bond girl, and I'm also gonna do favorite Bond one sheet movie poster. Ooh, um, that one would be hard. I'll have to think about that one. And, and and I might I might broaden it out from one sheet, which is an American, you know, the American or North American term, um, because there's some British quads that are just badass, you know, particularly from Russia with Love. Uh, they're just, that's just a gorgeous poster. Um, but, um, just unscientifically, no wrong answers here. Who's each of your favorite bonds, David? Uh, my favorite bond is Sean Connery. Okay. Christopher? Uh, it's tough. Cause the first ones that I saw in the theater were, with the, with the, um, the Pierce Brosnan ones, but I, I think I'm a Roger Moore guy. Okay. Wow. That's a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting shift. Paul. And I did respond to this on your Facebook page yes, already, yeah. but it is Sean Connery. And as much as I love Bond, not even close. I, For me, I was a Roger Moore guy. I grew up with my slightly older cousin yelling at me. Uh, he, Roger Moore is not James Bond. He's a saint. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Why not both? And, and, and uh, I, I, I grew to have a real fondness for Connery. Uh, I've decided that I wasn't wrong. I really did like Roger Moore. I didn't just didn't like the last two movies and pretty much everybody agrees on that. That's fine. Um, I think the thing that surprises me is I think Casino Royale is the best movie. I think Daniel Craig's the best bond. And I think all of them, if they got a script that good would have done wonderfully. I oh. can't imagine how great Pierce Brosnan would have been with a script that good, Timothy because Dalton he got close. He got close with Goldeneye. You know that was a really decent script, particularly after a really bad movie, uh, uh, and and that. But uh, but Craig, I 
you know, it's always that converts make the biggest zealots thing. I was so against him when he was cast. And that movie, it just everything, everything was so good about that movie. So but I my fondness for more, which is why I thought it would be great to be on with you guys doing this. And I really appreciate you guys having me on uh, is that. I've, I've sort of reconciled my appreciation of more in the fact that I cannot pretend that I don't think of the spy who loved me without nostalgia, you know, because that was like I got on a bus and went to downtown Pittsburgh with a friend and saw it. You know, I was 13 years old and my mom let me go downtown. <laughs> but then, but then you, you have to step back and say to yourself, nostalgia removed. Can I look at this, uh, you know, just on its own and on its merits and say, where does this fall? And I've been trying for the most part as we've been reviewing these movies because I do have some that there are some nostalgia factors in these. Uh, but I've been trying to... Uh, to kind of always keep that in mind and leave the nostalgia out of my final ratings on these films. Yeah, I, you know what? I, here's here's the thing about that. I don't know that it's entirely possible to do that, and I think that's my maturing outlook. I always, as a writer, particularly as a reviewer, uh, uh, I've always believed that I could do that, and. I question whether it's entirely possible. And that that's, like I said, this is a maturing uh, viewpoint for me because I always used to defiantly believe that it was possible to be clinical about a, a movie. Because, like I said, I think only the people who really love Bond movies can really pick at them. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I mean, we with, with the podcasting of... Uh, you know, movie reviews, comic book reviews, Star Trek reviews. I often come back with a review where I say, for me personally, this is this rating. But I understand why somebody <laughs> somebody else is not going to look at it as fondly. And often I, yeah. I do the reverse of that, too. And it, it happens more with some comics. When we look at some comics from the Silver Age where they're, you know, out and out silly. And, and, and part of the review will be to say... This is a comic that was clearly meant for somebody between the ages of 8 and 12, and I'm in my 50s, and I'm reviewing it. So, yes, I'm giving it this review, but if I were in the target audience, I think it would get this review. <laughs> I, think that that's, I think that that's very fair. Uh, I, I think that, you know, as you grow up, you know, preferably you get the ability to separate the idea of what you can tick off the boxes and say, this is inherently a good movie. And there's a difference between good and I like it. Yes. My, my example that I, that I always use is Tango and cash. It's well, Tango and cash is a horrible movie, but I freaking love it. Well, we've, we've had some discussions in the past about what, you know, people call guilty pleasures. No such thing. And, and my buddy, Scott Gardner always says, damn, I don't feel guilty about anything. I like I'm the same way, and, man. And, and I can appreciate that mentality, but the definition of guilty pleasure doesn't actually have anything to do with guilt. Guilty pleasure is, I know objectively this is not a high-quality thing, but I like it anyway. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that's my feeling on almost any sort of artistic endeavor at all, whether it's a comic book or an album or a film or a TV show. I don't, if you're 
objective, objectively, and I'm doing air quotes, bad, uh, that's fine. Just don't be boring and entertain me. That, that's well, if, you, if you're entertaining in its own way, you're not objectively bad. Uh, well, the goal is to entertain. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of stuff that entertains me that some people will go, this is absolutely ridiculous. And speaking of Roger Moore, if Spice World pops up on cable, not that I have cable anymore, but if, when, when it was popping up on cable, I would sit down and watch it because Roger Moore is in it. And I know it's an absolute piece of garbage, but the eye candy's good, and I'm entertained by it. Well, to, to keep this James Bond related, which you did kind of giving me more in there, but uh, when Dave and I reviewed Never Say Never Again, Dave was not able to get the guilty pleasure out of it, rated it as a Jaws 4, and said, that's it, I just do not like this movie. I, fine. on the other hand, say, to me, it is a guilty pleasure. I know it isn't a high-quality movie, but I still enjoy watching it. So I gave it a Jaws 3. There you go. So now, speaking of that, <laughs> where do we rank for your eyes only? And I'm, I'm going to jump in first again at uh, this time, but I think this is a, a very, very entertaining movie. I think it hits, you know, it doesn't have the gadgets, but it hits all the boxes that you want to get from James Bond as far as the excitement goes, as far as beautiful women in locales go, as far as uh, just, you know, the adventure overall, Roger Moore's performance, just everything about it kind of hits it for me. But I can't go as far as to say it's perfect, a classic. So I can't give it a Jaws rating, but I think it's a very high Jaws 2. That you, that's my exact sentiment, Paul. It's a, it's a very high Jaws 2, because like I said, this and uh, Live and Let Die and Spider Love Me, I, to me, are just, I can put those on at any time, and I'll be perfectly entertained for the two hours that they're all on for. I could sit and watch them in a six-hour loop, and I'd be happy. I give this a solid Jaws too. I like <clears throat> I like it's a change from Moonraker. I like it's pretty much based more in the real world, where to some extent you could maybe see something like this happen. Um, there was just enough of the underwater stuff, not too much. General General Veers kept throwing me <laughs> for a loop. <laughs> But uh, overall, it was good. And it had Margaret Thatcher. So you can do better than that. <laughs> I mean, when you end a movie with Margaret Thatcher, for me, uh, that's it. Solid, dead center Jaws 2. Jeff, are you familiar with the rating system? I am familiar with the rating system. I, my quibble with it is that there's such a precipitous drop between Jaws and Jaws 2. <laughs> no, no, but, but, uh, but that, here's that, that is say. explained away that those ratings, as we use them on this show do not correspond to the actual movies because I, I rated I, Jaws I, I 3 as a Jaws 4. I understand. What I would say what I would say is that that this is like very few of the Bond movies. This is where we can get clinical. Very few of the Bond movies are Jaws. Uh, but if I were to say I think it's a, substantially not a Jaws 2 uh, it might be the TV showing of Jaws. Uh, you know, and I, it's a great movie, but the damn the commercial interruptions. Uh, uh, I think that this movie for me, um, 
if we speak in a somewhat historical, somewhat detached sense, I think if this had been Moore's final movie, we would not have to argue with people that he was a great James Bond. Ooh, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and I hadn't yeah. thought of it from that perspective. He did yeah, and, take a and, little and, of the shine off of things with the last two movies. Yeah. And, 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 and listen, even in all of those movies, in all of them, both of them, there's, there's some moment that I like uh, when yeah. Christopher Walken says, would anybody else care to drop out? Uh, <laughs> and otherwise a complete waste of Christopher Walken in a, in a Bond movie, which just, that should be criminalized. Yeah. Um, the and 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 there's a couple scenes. There's actually a couple scenes in Octopussy that are damn good. Um, uh, I, you know, for me, I go, I bounce back and forth between Live and Let Die and Spy Who Loved Me, which are very different movies. But my, as far as my favorite more thing, um, you know, Live and Let Die had has the thing of it simultaneously got me back into bond and rock and roll uh because i'm a mccartney fan so between between um between that and the comic book connection and magneto and titanium man i was sort of i was sort of hooked for life and you know drove my friends crazy for the rest of their lives as far as they know yet um uh i think that this i think this is probably my third favorite more movie but like i said it's got my favorite more scene in it so so it's it's Jaws two across the board. Solid Jaws two. One point yeah. five. What's that? I'm sorry. What? One point five. Yeah. Well, that's that's a high Jaws two or a low Jaws, whichever way you want to look at it. It's a lower jaw. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a, a, a mandibular. Guys, seriously, thank you for putting up with me. I know I yak a lot, and I, I probably talked to you guys. Have a you bunch heard of any of us? Yeah, because I just got. I just because I. I just get excited about this thing because I could talk about Bond all day, and I guess you guys are the same way, and it's really yeah. refreshing. And you know, for me, you know, despite the fact that we can sit here and be critical, uh, there's virtually no James Bond movie that I won't get some enjoyment out of. Uh, you know, eventually we'll get there. But the interesting thing is the one that I thought I didn't get any enjoyment out of was Quantum of Solace, but the last time I saw it. It was back to back with yes. uh, Casino Royale, and that's the only way to watch it. Yep. You cannot watch it I as a standalone I'm film. I'm a big fan of hotels that are built to explode. Aren't we all? <laughs> Aren't they all built to explode in case there's you know a ghost infestation or something? That's that's a. I don't remember what it was. I was listening to it was some podcast, and they were talking about like. Uh, well, it wasn't like, this one, was it? No, it was not. Okay. <laughs> they were talking about like an island where there was a button that you pressed to self-destruct it. <laughs> and they were like, who would do that? <laughs> when they were designing the island, I told them to put in that self-destruct button. Now I have Two to always be careful that I don't brush into it. Plausible deniability. That's why. There's that one lever you cannot pull or the whole place is going to explode. <laughs> anyway, do thanks guys for coming on. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you in two weeks. And uh, we'll be doing something other than James Bond, but uh, we will be back with uh, Octopussy as our next Bond film in a, in a little while. Yay. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night. Good night.
afternoon, Mr. Bond. Don't concern yourself with the pilot. One of my less useful people. You are now flying remote control airways. <laughs> Bond. But the end cannot be far away. 